so many of us love coffee, like the living for it type of love. Some like it hot, some like it iced with a splash of creamer, and some like it with a cold foam topping. Many of us stop into coffee shops on our way to work more often than we'd like to admit. But now, thanks to International Delight Cold Foam Creamer, you can make cold foam coffee at home, or in my team's case, in the office, and it's a game changer. I was just chatting with a teammate of mine about our love for the occasional sweet treat coffee. Sometimes it's just the thing you need as a pick-me-up on a busy day. And we just stocked our office fridge with International Delight Cold Foam Creamer, and it never misses. The team's favorite flavor so far is the Caramel Macchiato. You just shake the canister and spray it into your coffee, and voila, you've got an incredible cold foam coffee, no frothing, fancy machines, or mess required. International Delight Cold Foam Creamer foams and creams your coffee from top to bottom. The best part? It works on both hot and iced coffee. It comes in three foaming, delicious flavors, French vanilla, sweet and creamy, and caramel macchiato. So you can switch things up depending on your mood. Look for your favorite flavor next time you're at your grocery store and be prepared to say goodbye to your barista. International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. It's foaming delicious. This is episode number 1051 with the former CIA director, John Brennan. Sometimes it shakes your confidence, certainly. It makes you wonder whether not just whether the decisions that you made were wrong, but just, you know, how are you going to be able to make future decisions? Of course, we have to take care of our own country and our own people, but that doesn't mean we do it at the expense of the rest of the world. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, a former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. Lao Tzu once said, when you are content to be simply yourself and don't compare or compete, everyone will respect you. And Albert Einstein said, whoever is careless with the truth in small matters cannot be trusted with important matters. John Brennan was the director of the CIA from 2013 until 2017. And during that time, he was responsible for intelligence collection, analysis, covert action, counterintelligence, and liaison relationships with foreign intelligence services. From 2009 to 2013, John was assistant to the president for Homeland Security and counterterrorism. I was fascinated by everything that John was sharing I didn't want this conversation to stop. There was so much I wanted to learn. And it was an honor to talk with John and hear his incredible stories and wisdom. And I can't wait for you to hear this. In this episode, we discuss how to make sure you're not being followed or tracked by other agents. The months leading up to bin Laden's mission and the most nerve-wracking 90 minutes for Brennan. The details of possible attacks after 9-11 that were stopped by John and his team which presidents John was inspired by the most while he was working with them, making mistakes and being a leader, how to navigate that, how to deal with the responsibility of making incredibly tough decisions, how you can tell if a person is lying to you or telling the truth, the three common principles that made the presidents effective decision makers and leaders, and the qualities you should develop right now if you want to become the president of the United States and so much more. It was truly fascinating conversation. Make sure to share it with a friend that you think would be inspired, lewishouse.com slash 1051, 
or you can just copy and paste this link wherever you're listening to it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or anywhere else. And make sure to subscribe over on Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review if you're inspired by this mission and you want to spread greatness to more people. Okay, in just a moment, the one and only John Brennan. Welcome back, everyone, to the School of Greatness. I am very excited. We have New York Times bestselling author John Brennan in the house. Thank you so much for being here. It's great to be with you, Louis. And uh, you have seen some of the craziest things in the in the last forty years, uh, working with the CIA almost for four decades. Is that right? You were working there. Well, I worked first for 25 years at CIA and retired, went off to the private sector to see what it was like to earn a living outside of the appropriations <laughs> of Congress. To make real went, money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, for at least a little while. Then went back in for the entire eight years of the Obama administration, four of which were at the CIA. So 29 years at CIA and four plus years at the White House. What would you say is the craziest thing that you had to deal with? Because it seems like every four to six years, there's something crazy that happens. What would you say was the biggest stress for you that you needed to face and help overcome? Well, there's, there's so many to choose from. <laughs> <laughs> there are all my interactions with Congress and the, the hyper-partisan environment there. Uh, I think as I point out in the book, uh, I'm an equal opportunity offender. So uh, there are people on both sides of the aisle that have called for my uh, resignation or firing over the years. Everyone um, wanted you fired. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's sort of the life of a CIA director and an intelligence officer. Uh, but uh, obviously the, the Bin Laden raid was a very nerve-wracking, anxiety-producing, nail-biting uh, mm -hmm. situation. Um, uh, dealing with the aftermath of 9-11 um, and uh, trying to ensure that CIA was able to respond very quickly to prevent recurrences of those attacks. And that aftermath was particularly challenging because mm -hmm. we were also dealing with the Washington sniper the anthrax attacks, uh, just a number of things that I think just made the whole environment all that more uh, of concern and worry. Uh, and so, and there are many things that uh, when I was overseas, um, you know, just making sure that my children were going to be safe when we lived in Saudi Arabia, when there were terrorist attacks in the region, and and many things that I can't talk to you about. Right, sure, <laughs> sure. Was a very intense. Yeah. What what is the, you know, I think when people think of a CIA agent, they think of a spy uh, in a movie or a film, it's romanticized in that way. What does a day in the life of a CIA agent actually look like? Yeah. And one of the things I think is important is terminology, because a lot of people refer to, you know, CIA spies as being the CIA uh, employees. But uh, in our lexicon, at least, um, uh, CIA officers who engage in conducting espionage are called case officers. They're mm -hmm. operations officers. They're the ones who are trained in the tradecraft of espionage and go out and try to recruit foreign nationals to spy against their countries. Really? And, yes. And it's those foreign nationals who are referred to as the spies or the, the okay. assets or the CIA agents. Uh, which is a bit confusing because FBI agents are actual, you know, FBI employees. They're the Americans who are in the FBI who carry out their law enforcement responsibilities. So there is, um, you know, a, a difference in view, a difference in lexicon. Uh, sure. But again, CIA officers, um, and I started off in the CIA very briefly as a case officer um, to go. So overseas. you were working. You were working with 
other people from another country to try to get information to use for our country. Right. That's what CIA case officers do. They, they don't necessarily work with uh, officers of other countries. In fact, frequently when they go overseas, and most times they go overseas, it's not known that they are CIA officers. They have other personas. They have maybe other official cover, such as uh, an employee of another government agency or department. Uh, they may work at embassies, but they are not known to be CIA officers because they have to operate surreptitiously in order to meet with foreign nationals who are going to commit basically treason against uh, their countries. Crazy. Why, how, do yeah. they, how do you convince someone of a country who has pride of a country, maybe they don't anymore, how do you convince them to essentially work for you against that country? Well, it's interesting because I think um, foreign nationals who decide to work for CIA do so for a variety of reasons and motivations. Some live within countries that uh, human rights and political openness and freedom of speech are very much suppressed, and they believe very strongly in what the United States of America stands for. And so they want to try to help the United States because uh, they feel that you know, the United States is a force of, of good in the world. Uh, some individuals are motivated by money or by the potential for resettlement in the United States. If they work for the CIA over the course of time and they provide us useful information, they want their children to go to American universities, they want to get the visas, or the immigrant visas to come and settle in the United States. Um, and also there are some people who just you know, enjoy the, the, the whole romance of it all. Uh, because they are involved in this, again, clandestine activity, uh, working with the CIA. So I think most of them, you know, have a, a component of that first category, which is that there is something that they admire, respect, uh, like about the United States, and want to try to support uh, U.S. Uh, interests, uh, global interests. How many... What would you call them, spies then, for the other countries, essentially? Yeah, the per the people, the foreign nationals who are recruited yeah, by assets. CIA are spies. Yeah, assets. How many people did you recruit, or is that something you're allowed to talk about? No, well, I didn't. As I said, I started out just very briefly in CIA as a case officer. Got but it. then um, I realized that uh, I didn't have, I think, the, the skills, the interests uh, <laughs> to do that. Because it really is a very, very challenging profession, because they have to adopt these false personas, basically and uh, try to cultivate relationships with uh, foreign nationals and try to develop uh, a rapport that's going to allow them to then recruit these individuals to work on behalf of uh, the U.S. government. And I, I find it difficult to misrepresent you know, who I am. Um, and so I moved mm -hmm. over into the analytic ranks of CIA. Now I also did serve as the chief of station overseas in the Middle East mm -hmm. in the 1990s. Um, and I um, oversaw uh, those espionage activities. Wow. Uh, so it, I just, uh, my, my admiration is very, very strong for the women and men of CIA who over the years have gone to great lengths and taken great risks and have demonstrated great courage to recruit these foreign spies who really give the United States the type of insight that we need to wow. understand the nature of the threats uh, against us. How did you know that the information was accurate as someone see, overseeing these uh you know agents who were finding assets of other countries how could you trust that the information was true well uh, a lot of people who want to give information to the united states uh, their information ranges from the most accurate and reliable to the most specious and bogus 
And it's up to CIA officers to try to determine whether or not someone is being truthful. And there are different ways to do that. Uh, there are ways to validate or verify information. There are techniques and tools that you use to try to find out if someone's being honest, including the polygraph. So uh, CIA will, you know, frequently uh, administer polygraph exams to foreign nationals who are spying for us. Uh, those uh, those polygraph exams are not necessarily dispositive of the truth, but they frequently will, you know, rivet one's attention <laughs> on sure. telling the truth. Uh, so, and also there's a track record over time. Again, you're able to verify somebody's access, verify uh, that uh, the information or documents that they may be providing are in fact true. Uh, you also have to make sure that they're not a, what's called a dangle, which is, a foreign intelligence service, you know, pushes someone forward to a, a presumed CIA officer and to see whether or not they're going to be recruited um, as a way to expose CIA intelligence activity. So it really is a challenging, challenging profession um, and undertaking for, you know, the CIA uh, to make sure that their human assets uh, are going to be providing information that is accurate, uh, reliable and important. This is fascinating to me because you're essentially living a lie when you have to go out and be be undercover and be act like you're someone you're not. How does someone like that? And I don't know if you know this or not, but how does someone go out, let's say nine to nine, and then come home at night and be in integrity, be honest, you know, be their word with their friends and family, and not continue to wear the mask that they're living most of the day? Yeah, that's a really good point, and. I do think that there's a certain amount of professional schizophrenia <laughs> that, wow. that has to exist because, yes, you, you have this undercover CIA um, responsibility and identity, but you have to live maybe a different type of cover, another government agency cover or commercial cover. But you also have to be very, very careful in terms of who knows your actual organizational affiliation. When I was director of CIA, we would have every year what's called a family day, and, and uh, CIA officers, women and men, would bring in their families and show them around CIA headquarters and bring them up to the director suite where my wife and I would greet them. And there was a couple of dozen, I think, occasions over the course of four years of family days where CIA employees were bringing their children into CIA headquarters for the first time. And it was the day when the children learned that their parent actually was a CIA employee. No way. <laughs> as opposed to being an employee of another organization or just a private no company or way. something. And the look on these kids' faces when they came in and just where, you know, they were gobsmacked that, oh my goodness, it's so cool. My mom is a CIA officer or, or you know, my dad is. And because you don't want to burden your family members, especially children, with this knowledge that if exposed really could compromise a, a CIA officer's ability to carry out their uh, activities. Um, so it's, you know, when CIA officers uh, conduct these activities overseas, they are basically violating the laws of foreign countries because you know, carrying out espionage activities, just like here in the United States, if a, if a Russian or Chinese intelligence officer was doing it, they're breaking the law. And the same thing that CIA officers do overseas. So again, it's a very risky profession, but also a critically important profession. Wow. How many uh, assets do you think there are in America that are doing work for other countries? Um, more than a few. <laughs> wow. Um, there, 
The fact that the United States, I think, is really uh, the epicenter of uh, democratic you know, values you know, and uh, freedoms and liberties uh, allows a lot of foreign governments and intelligence and security services to use the openness of American society, whether they send individuals here under government cover or as businessmen or as students or academics. And so you can imagine the FBI in particular has its wow. hands full to try tra- to understand. Track this. Yeah, because, you know, the theft of intellectual property, of technology. And now we're, you know, in this COVID environment of, you know, um, pharmaceutical information or, you know, related to vaccines or whatever else. You know, the, the intelligence security services from around the world are very active in the United States. And uh, thankfully, you know, we have a, a world-class uh, FBI organization that uh, does a good job of trying to keep track of them. But in addition, they have to keep track of, you know, would-be terrorists. And so it's a it's a full plate of responsibilities. How do you have inner peace when you're in this position, uh, you know, when you're running this organization within the government? And how do people that are living these secret lives in the organization not stress out all the time, not break down, not be emotional wrecks? Uh, not have anxiety attacks? Like, how do you guys cope? Is there strategies? Is there meditation? Is there, you know, you know you're fighting for something greater? What is the way to manage your per- inner interpersonal well-being? Well, the CIA has always tried to take care of its employees, particularly those that have these very stressful positions and responsibilities. And it is stressful. You know, a CIA officer is handling a, you know, a foreign national who is an asset of CIA who is really putting their lives on the line. Because if these foreign nationals are found out by their governments, uh, they can spend their life in jail or be executed. And there have been many CIA assets over the years who have been killed because of their CIA relationship. That's why it's so important for a CIA officer who is meeting with a foreign asset or national to do everything, everything possible to prevent any exposure of that individual. So when CIA officers operate overseas, you know, they, what it's called, they, they go black. They, they will spend hours upon hours upon hours ensuring that there is no tail that they have picked up from the local intelligence and security services so that when they have that very, very quick meeting with an asset, you know, in a park or wherever, that they have not been trailed. And they have to make sure that the asset also uh, conducts him or herself in a manner that is not alerting to the local authorities and goes through the same process of trying to ensure that they're not being tracked as they meet with their CIA case officer. How do you, if it's just practical for the the human being that's not a CIA operative, how, do, how does someone know when they're not being trailed or tailed? How do, how do you get someone off your back? Well, there are certain techniques, and I'm not going to reveal you know, CIA's tradecraft, but uh, CIA officers go through extensive, extensive training, and uh, they, they go to great lengths. And there are ways and techniques that you can at least have strong confidence that you are free of any observation. You know, sometimes it, it takes some very innovative and creative uh, means, including the, the use of disguises or, or whatever. Uh, so... Um, I think over the course of CIA's, you know, 73 years or so of, of existence, uh, we have developed a number of uh, uh, techniques and uh, learned lessons that were very important for this. Is there anything that you could share that's more basic stuff 
that is is common practice or well known? Well, you know, disguises, I think, are fairly well known in terms of a way to mask one's identity. Yeah. It's become very more, much more challenging, though, as a result of all the technological advancements, particularly over the last uh, two decades, especially with the, the evolution and explosion in the digital domain. Because uh, the environment now overseas is such that the, the traditional ways to get across borders or to operate clandestinely in foreign countries no longer apply. In the past, you know, intelligence services could fabricate passports as well as visas and then go into countries and with a fistful of 50s, as people say, operate. Uh, it's still at great risk, but they didn't have to worry about closed circuit uh, televisions or the digital domain, you know, because every time you use a credit card or at an ATM machine or with an iPhone, you know, you you uh, are alerting. You're you know, pinging you, uh, somewhere, yeah. Right. And so uh, the challenge for CI officers is to operate in this very busy digital environment. And so let's say oh, that, that they operate. possible right now. Well, yeah, because if we could tell CI officers, to, well, don't take your, your iPhone, your mobile phone out of the embassy when you were. But if everybody else in the embassy who's not a CIA officer takes it out, the absence of oh that, that, that digital pinging is alerting in and of itself. So, again, we've had to find very creative ways to operate within this very dense digital dust environment. My career not only requires me to travel, but also gives me the freedom to. Traveling has brought me so many positive experiences and memories. Like that time I spent the holidays at an Airbnb in Big Bear with some of my extended family, and it was the perfect way to come together and connect with my family that I don't see that often. If you have a similar setup that allows you to travel often, have you ever thought about your empty home while you're gone? More specifically, how you can make some extra money by keeping your home occupied while you're out of town. I'm a big advocate for setting up a side hustle to give you an extra stream of income and Airbnb hosting is an easy place to start. Many people host on Airbnb, including some friends of mine, but there are some people out there who've never even realized their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you've got yourself an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Quaker has been a trusted name in breakfast for over 145 years, which is crazy to think about because that means they've been milling oats since before the invention of the zipper, the stop sign, and the ballpoint pen. And while clearly a lot of things have changed since 1877, some things have stayed the same, like the great taste and quality of Quaker oats. I mean, I think we all grew up with Quaker in our household. Quaker has something for everyone, like old-fashioned and quick oats, great for cooking and baking, or instant oatmeal in different flavors flavors and varieties, one of my faves for a quick breakfast. And whether it's lower sugar or added protein or fiber, Quaker Oats can satisfy the whole family. There's even Quaker Fruit Fusion with real fruit pieces, added vitamins, and no artificial colors for a bold start to a bold morning. Quaker, getting up to some good since 1877. Look for Quaker Oats in your local grocery store. The Enhanced American Express Business Gold Card is designed to take your business further. 
It's packed with benefits like four times membership rewards points that adapt to your top two eligible spending categories every month on up to $150,000 in purchases per year and up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. The Amex Business Gold Card, now smarter and more flexible. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Uh, so that, again, they can operate uh, clandestinely, securely. And learning more about that digital domain and, and the use of it, uh, both by our you know, foreign intelligence services and adversaries, is critically important for the CIA to be able to operate today around the world. What would you say is the moment that you're most proud of from your work there, the CIA, and involved in this process? where there was a massive tragedy or uh, stressful event and you and your team really stepped up and prevented something extremely catastrophic from happening? Well, I, you know, this, the CIA is frequently criticized for some of the, um, the tactics that it employed in the aftermath of 9-11. And people have the misunderstanding that the, the CIA is not a rogue organization. It doesn't decide, you know, to do things, you know, just on its own whim. That detention and interrogation program that included things like waterboarding mm-hmm. were directed uh, by the President of the United States, George W. Bush. They were determined to be lawful by the highest legal body in the uh, executive branch, which is the Office of Legal Counsel in the Department of Justice. So when the CIA receives a duly authorized order uh, and it's determined to be lawful, they carry out those those programs. Now, I find that, you know, those programs were unfortunately, you know, reprehensible from the standpoint of, you know, ethical, principled, um, moral um, intelligence work. But um, again, I, I, they were lawful at the time. So let's set aside that in terms of the controversy of that. But the CIA in the aftermath of 9-11 worked day and night around the globe, including with a lot of intelligence services around the world, to uncover the Al-Qaeda operatives who were poised to carry out the second and third wave of attacks. Wow. And there was a very well-developed plan by Al-Qaeda to carry out a series of aircraft attacks against the west coast of the United States. Really? They were going to be, going to be launched out of Southeast Asia. Yeah, the, the, the funding, the resources were acquired, the operatives were identified, the, the, the flights and other things. And it was only because of the tremendous work that CIA did, along with you know, other US departments and agencies, but principally it was the CIA that stopped those you know, follow-on attacks that could have been quite horrific. So. You know, the CIA was the one that uh, deployed to Afghanistan first in the aftermath of 9-11. It was CIA boots on the ground before U.S. military boots. CIA officer was killed first in Afghanistan before any U.S. military wow. was killed there after 9-11. So there, there are a lot of things that, you know, unfortunately, uh, for maybe you listeners, that uh, I can't go into detail about. But the, the lengths to which uh, the CIA went and uh, I think the very courageous uh, acts that they engaged in, uh, again, some of them, uh, I, I think, were very unfortunate that, uh, you know, were conducted, but um, yeah. the, there's a, a strong track record of success there. Is it uh, public knowledge about where Al-Qaeda was going to strike on the West Coast, or were they going for San Francisco and Los Angeles? Was there specific buildings they were trying to target, or is this 
Uh, I'm not sure what has been made public or, or not uh, now. I, I know that there was you know public acknowledgement of of this, uh, and some of it is is detailed in previous books. Um, but they they did have targets picked out, um, and uh, again flight paths uh, that were identified uh, for them. Uh, and so it was again because of the the work to to disrupt that. But there were other types of things as well, and. Uh, attacks that uh, were planned uh, during the Obama administration, uh, where they were uh, had brought uh, bombs onto aircraft that they were intended to explode over the United States. Uh, the, the infamous uh, December uh, Christmas Day, two thousand and nine, when uh, someone by the name of Adam Talib, who was a Nigerian national, was aboard a flight that was landing in Detroit, and his his pants went on fire. And I got a phone call at home, and I detail this in, in the memoir that. Um, they didn't know what was happening. You know, why was this person's pants on fire as they were, you know, descending onto Detroit Airport? Well, he tried to detonate an improvised explosive device that had been hidden in his underwear, and there was a, a bit of a, a, a miscue there, and uh, it, so it didn't detonate. It just flamed, oh and uh, they were planning. This is Al Qaeda planning to bring that aircraft down over Detroit uh, with, you know, could have been catastrophic uh, results. And there were other attempts to do the same thing towards Chicago and uh, other efforts. So, you know, th these are very serious uh, threats. Um, and, and thankfully, none of them uh, came to fruition the way the 9-11 attacks uh, unfortunately did. But it's because, again, of the, I think, very, very uh, courageous work that was done by CIA and others. You worked very, you worked very closely with Obama, correct? Yeah, for the entire eight years of the Obama administration. For the first four plus years, I served as his Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor. And my office was in the West Wing, almost directly below the Oval Office. So I was up and down the stairs seeing him multiple times a day. And then in the second wow. term, I was director of CIA. So yeah, he's just a, a very, very impressive individual. And I have great admiration for him. Uh, you know, again, none of us, you know, are, are, are perfect or mistake free. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think he would look back on, on his eight years and probably, you know, wishes that he would have done some things differently. He talks about that in his, his book, mm -hmm. uh, but it, 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 I, I felt very privileged to work for him as well as for, I worked for six presidents, three Democrats and three Republicans. And although I had disagreements with them as far as policy choices, I had tremendous respect for all of them because mm -hmm. I thought that each one of them really tried to do what they could to protect this country and advance our national <clears throat> security interests. And I guess that's why I've been so maybe outspoken uh, about Donald Trump, because uh, I think he has been such an aberration and such an abnormal <laughs> incumbent in the Oval Office that he put his interests uh, above uh, the country's interests. Which president do you feel that you worked with um, managed the national crisis is the best or were the most inspiring in your in your minds on how they showed up and responded based on the level of stress and crisis that would come well i got to know four of them fairly well um the george hw bush uh, bush 41 i got to know him best in fact when i was you know after he had left government, um, but he was a former director of CIA. Before he mm. became president of the United States, he was CIA director for a year, and he always, always just treasured that experience. And, wow. and so I would go down to Houston, my wife and I, and we'd have dinner or lunch with uh, President Bush, as well, along with Barbara Bush. It was just a very, very enjoyable. And he's somebody who, 
given that he was eight years as vice president and director of CIA and served in Congress and you know ambassador to China, he he had a tremendous breadth of experience. And so dealing with, for example, the the Gulf War in 1990-91, he had a very very measured as well as experienced you know, approach to dealing with that. I had the privilege of, of being President Bill Clinton's daily intelligence briefer for a year. So I would go down and sit with him in the Oval Office and go through what's called the President's Daily Brief. And he's somebody who really had a very impressive intellect. Uh, he could absorb just you know massive amounts of information, process it, and had tremendous powers of recall. He, he could recall things that I had briefed him you know months previously, and I had long since forgotten them. So wow. uh, very impressive. George W. Bush, um, I, I thought he had a lot of integrity, and I think he was misserved by some people uh, around him, uh, up to and including his, his vice president in terms of the decision to go to war with Iraq. Mm -hmm. But in the aftermath of 9-11, uh, the way he, I think, rallied this country and the way he spoke out so forcefully and to ensure that people didn't see this as an attack by Islam on the United States and made a very strong point about, you know, this is not to be blamed on, on Muslims or Islam. This is just a, you know, a group of depraved terrorists. Mm. So, I, you know, I do think he handled that situation very well. I think he made some policy mistakes afterward. But Barack Obama, I think he very much deserves the moniker, uh, no drama Obama, because he... <laughs> always, always was able to receive even the most um, unnerving information in a, a very measured uh, and calm manner. And so I just, uh, you know, it, he had also a, a almost a unique uh, ability to see relationships far beyond just the information that, you know, was being presented. He, he seemed to always be playing like six-dimensional chess because he always was looking for, well, if I move my chess piece on this board, how does it affect my positioning on the other board? And he always would ask additional questions uh, to understand uh, the implications of a, of a policy decision he might make. So, you know, the presidents that I got to know, they were different, um, all of them, but they all, again, were impressive and took their national security responsibilities very seriously and also tremendously valued intelligence. That doesn't mean that they, you know, put, um, you know, confidence in everything that we said. They would challenge uh, the intelligence uh, briefings that, and, and me, uh, but they very much appreciated the give and take as well as they appreciated the work and the sacrifices that were made by intelligence officers. Wow. So you'd say you became the closest with Obama because you were seeing him pretty much yes, all yeah, the time. Yes, uh, on a, yeah, on a regular basis, yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> late at night, early in the morning, if I had to you know, go up to the private residence uh, or, you know, call him and wake him up or so you, you get to know people. <laughs> wow. Yeah. What can you share about uh, the, the Bin Laden uh, scenario, about the strategy behind that, about the information that you would give to Obama, um, about, you know, the planning of it? What, you know, can you share what can you share about that? Yeah, and I, and I tried to go into some detail in the book because it, it was a, a very historic event, I think, mm -hmm. uh, for the United States. Um, I think the CIA in the aftermath of 9-11 really felt a degree, I don't want to say a responsibility for 9-11 attacks, but mm -hmm. really were, were crushed that they weren't able to prevent that, that strike um, on 9-11. And so therefore, we're working diligently uh, over the course of many years. And 
the, the intelligence business is really one where you really try to find all the different puzzle pieces and you know you're never going to get all the pieces and you try to understand what those puzzle pieces reveal in terms of the picture. And so uh, in the first Obama term, when uh, Leon Panetta, who was the director of CIA at the time, came into the uh, Oval Office and told us that the CIA believes that they had identified the residence of where a courier of Obama was staying, which we were told and we knew that if we were able to identify the carriers that were interacting with Obama, they might be able to lead us then to uh, the carriers to uh, bin Laden. Yeah. Uh, so not, it not, was not Barack Obama. But. No, no, right. It was Osama <laughs> bin Laden. Yeah. Uh, um, so it was it was exciting, but we also knew that wow. there were some real challenges there. And when they, we were told that um, this compound uh, was in a place called Abbottabad, uh, which also was the location where basically the equivalent, the Pakistani equivalent of West Point was. Uh, that's that's where they would train the military officers. So. We, it made us wonder whether or not the Pakistanis were hiding bin Laden and giving him protection there. And so it then uh, provoked or, or sparked a, a months-long effort to try to get as much insight as possible into who was at that compound. And we were able then to observe uh, a tall individual who would um, walk on the compound uh, and just in an exercise fashion. And we called him the pacer. Um, and uh, we didn't know whether that pacer was bin Laden or not. But um, Barack Obama uh, wanted us to come up with um, options in terms of if it was bin Laden, what would we do? And so now there that, were num- you were able to track this through uh, satellite or through how are you seeing this? All of the above, <laughs> put it that way. Uh, <laughs> Anything you could find, yeah. Yeah, there are. You know, we were wanting to you know tap into our human source networks. We wanted to use different types of technical collection systems, whether they be uh, ways to observe uh, that area or ways to pick up uh, signals intelligence. Uh, mm. So it was, again, this is the work of intelligence officers to piece together everything possible to, again, try to understand what that puzzle picture actually looks like. And so the you know options that were considered were to hit that compound with missiles. Uh, that was dismissed for a variety of reasons. One is that it would cause a lot of civilian casualties in the area. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, we wouldn't have had confirmation that it was bin yeah. Laden who was there. And so it, eventually, we decided on the assault uh, by the helicopters and the U.S. Special Forces, the U.S. SEALs, Navy SEALs, to go in. And uh, it was a very, very intense, nerve-wracking uh, operation uh, with great, great secrecy associated with it. And um, it, it was you know, a real testament to not just the, the dedication and work of the intelligence professionals, but the talent, skills, and courage of our special forces. So now, are you orchestrating this whole thing, essentially? You're, you're planning it with uh, Barack day in and day out for a month or two. You're, you're in the weeds well, of it. Well, there were a lot of people. I was the president's counterterrorism advisor, but I worked very closely with uh, Tom Donlin, who was the national security advisor at the, in the White House, and with uh, President Obama and Vice President Biden. And then Leon Panetta at uh, the CIA, and then Bill McRaven, uh, who was uh, admiral, who basically led uh, or um, oversaw that that assault. So it was a basically a, a trifecta of uh, Department of Defense, uh, the CIA, and the White House, uh, and it was uh, designed to try to ensure the utmost secrecy because we knew that Bin Laden was not going to stay at that compound forever. 
because Al Qaeda leaders would go to certain locations and then leave after time because they were afraid that their you know location was going to be exposed. And so we were working against time. We also, though, knew that um, one of the things that Bill McRaven told us that when we were going, we decided on the helicopter assault, that we had to do it according to the lunar cycle. Because every 28 days, you want to make sure that there is going to be the least amount of, of moonlight that the uh, helicopters can travel into Pakistan and the assault can take place. So you have about a three or maybe four day window every 28 days. And so we were trying to time the assault so that it would coincide with the least amount of moonlight um, and also the weather. That's fascinating. And also conditions on the ground. So yeah, it was, it was an orchestration. Fascinating. Effort. So it had to be one day, essentially, with the least amount of light. Right. Every, every 28 days, you, you try to wow. optimize that. And so we decided that it was going to take place on that uh, May 1st day. Wow. So how many, when you said this is happening, we are doing this and we're going to be doing this in this fashion, how many months or how many days did it take from, okay, this is happening. This is the way it's going to happen. This is who's going in. How long did that take until it actually happened? Well, it was in early September that um, Leon Panetta came into the White House and told us about this um, compound that might be, in fact, the location of wow. Bin Laden. And it wasn't until May 1st that the assault took place. So it was, you know, through the fall and winter. And then it was about in the February, March timeframe when the options were narrowed down and the uh, decisions were, were made as far as how to go forward with it. So there had to be the training that was done, you know, the, the mock-up of the facilities wow. uh, so that they could prepare for every eventuality. Uh, they had to identify the teams. Uh, so um, it, it took, you know, a number of months, but those last 60 days in particular, um, March and April were the time when we really then were focused, you know, like a laser on doing it at, at the nearest opportunity, but recognizing that we were not going to have, you know, full confidence that it was bin Laden who was there. Gosh, that's crazy. Most nerve-wracking time for me was, after the assault took place, and we were confident that we got bin Laden and they were bringing his body back to Afghanistan by the, the helicopters, it took 90 minutes for those helicopters to go back oh into gosh. Afghanistan. And by, the, by that time, the Pakistani air defense forces were on alert. The Pakistanis had uh, sent up some uh, aircraft because uh, they knew something was going down in Abbottabad. And the, the local law enforcement you know, was out there. So... I was very concerned that even if we got bin Laden, if one of those helicopters was shot down and we lost a dozen or two dozen of our Navy SEALs, it would have been disastrous. And so I, those, that 90 minutes was the longest, you know, in, in my experience uh, working that issue. And you, I mean, you're in the White House at this time, it's late at night or what, what time is this? Yeah, well, you know, we started out very early in the morning, I think I got to the White House around six o'clock that day. And the operation started to go down basically at, at two o'clock Washington time. It was, you know, nighttime over in, in Pakistan, uh, two, 3.30. So between that time, they actually got on the compound and started uh, the, the assault. Uh, and it, it wasn't until um, seven o'clock at night or eight o'clock at night that we really had confidence that everybody was back, that it was bin Laden. And then the, the rest of the, the evening, we it was spent doing the things that we needed to do. So President Obama called President Bush, uh, as well as President Clinton, 
Um, I, I talked to my Saudi counterpart because one of my roles was to tell the Saudis that we got bin Laden. And although bin Laden was a Saudi by birth, the Saudis had um, um, uh, pulled his citizenship. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and But my job was to offer to the Saudis the, the body of bin Laden. Um, wow. And we, we thought that they were not going to take it. Um, and they... they, they uh, declined the opportunity uh, because they didn't want to, you know, have to deal with, you know, the remains and, you know, what did they do with them and martyrs. So his remains were disposed uh, according to Islamic rights um, mm. appropriately. But we all had some after action responsibilities, calling counterparts, talking to Congress and other things. Yeah. And, and then President Obama, I think it was a little before, a little after midnight, gave his uh, address to not just the nation, but to the world. Isn't it obnoxious when companies have those sneaky gotchas hiding deep in the fine print or bills that seem to go up for no dang reason? Like when budget airlines promise a cheap fare, but then charge you for every little thing until you realize you're paying even more than you would have elsewhere? At Metro by T-Mobile, there's nada yada yada. That means no contracts, no price hikes, no surprises. They don't even want me to speed through the legal, so here it is. When they say no price hikes when you join, they mean your price will never increase for talk, text, and smartphone data plans. Their only exclusions are for limited-time promos, per-use charges, and third-party services. I guess that really is nada yada yada. At Metro by T-Mobile. Nada yada yada. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. I can't emphasize enough how important therapy is for everyone. I can't imagine what my life would look like now if I hadn't made the decision to start working with a professional on my mental and emotional health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to fit your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Lewis today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash L-E-W-I-S. Wow. So right now in my office, I'm looking up at a, a photo that it was given to me. It's a large photo. And it's a President Obama, myself, uh, Tom Donilon, who was the National Security Advisor, uh, Dennis McDonough, who was the Deputy National Security Advisor at the time. And President Obama is in his suit, and we just went over his remarks that he was going to deliver to the nation. And the looks on our faces are much you know, more relaxed and relieved than they were just hours <laughs> before. And uh, it really was, I think, the, the culmination of uh, a, a years-long effort by many, many individuals uh, who were working tirelessly to just bring justice uh, in the aftermath of that 9-11 attack. So this is essentially 10 years after the fact of 9-11. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this is something that you guys have been trying to find him for a decade and figure out how to resolve this, essentially. What was that feeling like? Were you guys able to celebrate? Were you guys? Did you guys have like ship, a, a sip champagne? Did you have some tea together? Like, did you dance? What, what is that like when you have ten years of tension built up for a moment of completion? Yeah. Well, there's the iconic photo of yeah. uh, many of us uh, were sitting in not the Situation Room of the White House. It's in a, in a little ante room. 
we were gathered around a table. We were looking up at a screen, and yeah. you know, Secretary Clinton is you know has her hand over her mouth. But Obama's standing up, and everyone's sitting down. Well, here, well, no, Obama's sitting at a chair, and he has this intense look. Um, and, and we're all because that's just when the operation was going down. But when we got the word, uh, Geronimo, that uh, you know Bin Laden, you know, was 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 down, was taken. Um, there was no celebration, no jubilation, no clapping or applause. It was a very somber, sullen, even almost a, you know, a sacred moment, if I can use that term. Wow. Because I think we recognize that we happen to be uh, the, the stewards of this responsibility of ensuring that there was going to be justice in the aftermath of 9-11. And so there was no excitement. There, there was a, a, a sense of accomplishment but it was it was a quiet sense. It was you know we looked at each other you know and people and the president was saying well done and so we were we were uh, not congratulating each other so much as just saying boy this was so so important and it was done so well and the teamwork was just so strong that um, again it was we just felt that we happened to be in the government at the White House with these roles at the time when all this came together, all these puzzle pieces. And as I talk about in the book, that it was about 12.30 or so in the morning when I was going to be leaving. I was going outside to get into the car. But the outside of the West Wing of the White House, it was lighter than usual, brighter. And I could hear noise. And as I'm emerging from the doors of the West Wing, I could hear from the Lafayette Park, the square right next to the White House there, uh, scene of most recent, you know, demonstrations, whatever. Uh, this this glow because the the lights were on uh, and there was chants and people with horns and there was chants of USA, USA, wow, CIA, CIA. Right I know, and I do all every time because it, and it it was the first time that day where my emotions got the oh, better of me because you're you're running on adrenaline and you're trying to make sure you do everything that's necessary in order to have mission success. Wow. And, you know, ensure that the president is getting everything that, that he needs. And then so coming out and hearing that and hearing Americans, you know, in the, in the wee hours of the morning, you know, just showing their their appreciation and respect for what was done. It it uh, it, it sends chills up my spine. Gosh, right I'm getting emotional. I'm getting like, <laughs> yes, yeah, like goosebumps. This is, oh, man, that's amazing. Where were you 9-11? Do you remember? Obviously. I, I do. I was the um, deputy executive director of CIA, which is basically the deputy chief operating officer of the agency, you know, a senior official at CIA. And we were in the morning meeting that the executive staff would hold. And right at the end of the meeting, uh, the head of our operations center came in and said, a plane just hit the World Trade Center. There were no more details than that as far as the size of the plane or what, or the serious or what. But we all were looking at each other. And we, we knew that Al-Qaeda was trying to carry out some attack, including in the homeland, but we didn't have, unfortunately, the, the details of when it was going to happen or the target. And so we ended the meeting and we all went back to our office. And my office was right across the hall from this conference room where the meeting was being held. And so I was looking then at the television that was in the, the suite uh, of offices there. And I saw the second plane hit the other tower. And I saw the smoke coming out of the tower where the first plane hit and everybody knew immediately this was al-qaeda we're under attack wow and it was you know all hands on deck 
And so the rest of the day, we were busy evacuating the building because we had intelligence that CIA headquarters was on the target list. I remember going through that building and knocking on doors and making sure that we were able to get people out of the building. Um, we, um, our folks who were working on counterterrorism stayed there, uh, irrespective of the, the risk and the threat, because there was just a tremendous, tremendous requirement to learn everything about who was on those planes, what else might be planned. Um, and uh, there was gridlock in the, uh, along the streets and, and roads in the nearby area. And so it just took hours upon hours to get you know, all the non-essential uh, CIA officers off of the compound. But uh, I, I knew then that uh, the next you know, years, uh, certainly oh the, in the immediate near term, was going to be just such a demand on CIA to be able to respond uh, to al-Qaeda. How do you, I mean, you say all hands on deck. This is pre-iPhone. This is pre-social media. This is, you know, I remember 2011. I'm a freshman in college uh, playing football. And it's early in the morning. And I remember seeing that. I don't even know what the World Trade Center was. You know, I'm a guy from Ohio. I had no clue what you know World Trade Center was. But then it became very, obviously, very quickly learned what was going down. How do you gather enough information when it everyone it seems to be in chaos the country the world it's there's no intelligence through phones like there is now like what do people do if you're just like calling on a landline you're just uh... <laughs> well the cia had uh, communication systems that we were able to you know talk securely to uh, our people overseas and ah, okay. to our foreign counterparts and others and uh, cia has a presence in you know many 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 countries around the globe and so Immediately, as wow. I said, everybody went to sort of battle stations. But one of the things about the CIA and also the U.S. government, as good as we are, we rely so heavily on our foreign counterparts uh, because they're the ones with the eyes and ears in the countries of, of, mm. of you know, concern and of interest. And so we had to work very, very carefully and closely with them and, and intensively to ensure that they gave us whatever information they had that could have helped piece together that puzzle to find out who was responsible, who else might be out there, because we were very concerned about those follow-on attacks. And we didn't know if they were going to take place the next day, or the next week, a month, or whatever. So for quite a while, we were on you know, razor's edge uh, and uh, racing against time to do what we could. And that's why CIA was asked to send people immediately out to Afghanistan and to work with the, the Afghan locals and the tribes and to see whether or not we could find out where al-Qaeda was and the leadership was. And that led then to the U.S. military arriving and, you know, the push against uh, the areas where they were, you know, holed up in and Tora Bora. And that's when al-Qaeda scattered. Uh, and so it, it became then a, a years-long effort to try to, again, find, disrupt, uh, dismantle the al-Qaeda, you know, entire organization. Wow. How do you personally deal with self-doubt? when maybe you don't have all the information or, or all the data and that's your responsibility. And you're saying, here's what we need to do. Here's what we think something is. Let's take these actions. How do you overcome doubt and insecurity around information that may be accurate or maybe not? Yeah. it's uh, To be an effective big, leader really within your organization or with the president or whatever. It's, it's a big challenge. And the thing is that, the, you know, the CIA has, you know, very intensive training programs and tries to ensure that you understand exactly, you know, what types of information uh, are important, uh, how to evaluate them, um, how to determine how to collect more information. 
But then when you're in these positions of responsibility, and I think one of the important lessons that I learned is to know when you need to make a decision and when you, you know, there's not time to, to wait for more. Um, right. But also one of the critical skills, I think, of intelligence officers and policymakers is to try to ensure that you understand the gaps in your knowledge. And I would always tell intelligence officers who are going to go brief, you know, brief down at the White House, whatever, is to make sure that the people that they're briefing understand that what you're sharing is not the totality right. it's of the 20%, picture. It's 10%, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we might only have 10 puzzle pieces, and there might be you know 100 yet to be found. And so understanding the context and making sure that you appreciate the, the, the gaps in your knowledge and the, uh, the confidence that you have in it. But again, there come a time when whether you're a president or whether you're a intelligence officer, director of CIA, you know that you have to make a decision based on the knowledge that you have, the advice that you get, recommendations that you're given, and try to do the best job possible with what is available to you. And, you know, looking back over my career, there were decisions I made based on the the data I had based on the, the sense that I had of what was the right decision. Um, there were mistakes that were made. Those I'm going to have to live with for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would always go back and try to say, you know, why did it not go the way we thought? And again, learn lessons from them. But again, when you're in these positions, if you wait for totality of knowledge, um, it's, yeah. I see it's a, it's the sin of omission. Wow. <laughs> you, know, you can make sins of commission, but, uh, you know, sins of omission can be as devastating. Yeah. And how do you personally deal with, you know, decisions made that you tried to give your best based on the information and what was available, but, uh, ended up in hurting people or causing tragedies in some way? How do you personally deal with that? to make sure that you have confidence moving forward in decision-making. Sometimes it shakes your confidence. Certainly it makes you wonder whether or not, you know, not just whether the decisions that you made were were wrong, but just, you know, how are you going to be able to make future decisions? Yeah. But again, if you're going to be in these positions uh, of tremendous responsibility, you cannot neglect those responsibilities by avoiding decisions. You have to know when it's, you know, you shouldn't make a certain decision or you don't have to make a decision. But the best intelligence officers, the best government officers, best public servants I've seen take to heart mistakes that they make and really try to ensure that they do their absolute best never, ever to uh, have to uh, make a decision that might Entail a you know another mistake. Yeah, and uh, fortunately, I think the the overwhelming number of, of decisions that are, are are made are are the right ones. Sometimes the you know the, there are big strategic decisions. You know, do we invade Iraq? Well, that obviously begets so many more decisions and actions or whatever else. So, you know, there are tactical decisions that are made that have just you know have implications, but in a defined you know, time or space. But then the, the broader geostrategic decisions that are made yeah. that have, you know, reverberations, you know, well beyond, you know, that day or that, that, that area. Was there anything that you were against that ended up being a big mistake in the last 30, 40 years that you were, 
you were saying, you know, I don't really think we should be doing this as a nation, whether it was a president's decision or whoever's decision. Was there anything you were like, you know what, we could have done without that? You know, when I was in CIA for you know close to 30 years, I saw some things that I very much disagreed with. And when I was director, I tried to correct some of those things that I thought were wrong. The CIA was involved in some things like toppling governments, in, you know, in our in our history. Um, you know, certainly during the Cold War, when you know there was this you know rivalry and competition and almost existential you know uh, tension between the United States and the Soviet Union, and so there was a race to try to you know gain favor in different parts of the of the world. Um, what I talk about also in the book is that I am very much an opponent of any type of dissemination of disinformation. I think it's you know the propaganda, the putting out falsehoods, um, and intelligence services, including you know U.S. intelligence services, have done that over the years in order to you know advance their interests. But first of all, I think it's incompatible with you know the values of of our country. Uh, I think it can be very very damaging if it's uncovered. But also, I think that uh, the United States should really be uh, seen as a, a beacon of of truth, <laughs> uh, as opposed to um, you know false smears just to advance, you know, some particular program or project. Uh, also, um, I, I do believe strongly that the that covert action programs, that these are programs, again, authorized by a president of the United States, should never be done just to conceal embarrassing information. Or uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, the, the hand of the United States sometimes has, has to be hidden overseas, but also, I think we need to take more responsibility for the types of things that we do as a way to demonstrate uh, how a, a country operates uh, in the international environment in a responsible, judicious uh, manner. Yeah. And so uh, there, there have been some things that, again, the CIA has been involved in over the years, you know, whether it be disinformation or, again, toppling regimes. Uh, these are things that I think never should take place. What's your definition of integrity? Integrity is, is um, it's a combination of things for me. Uh, honesty is at the, the root of that. Um, but also, when I used to, I would administer the oath of office to incoming CIA officers every month in the CIA lobby. And I would underscore the importance of integrity, which, which brought employees into the agency. We were willing to trust them with the nation's secrets and be part of the CIA family. But integrity is the, the distinction between right and wrong. I don't say good and evil. It's really right and wrong. It's what is that North Star? What are those, what are those moral lessons, ethical lessons? What are those principles and values that really do define, I think, what it means to be a, a good person, a kind person, um, an honest person, a, a person who is not going to try to take advantage of others in order to advance their own personal interests? You know, integrity is sort of a, a, a package of what a person, how, how a person you know, defines themselves, as well as how they, they treat others. And again, I think honesty, um, humility, uh, um, recognition that um, we are um, on this planet, I think, to um, try to ensure the betterment of, of mankind. I just, there is a, a sense that, for me, integrity um, makes one um, aware of their uh, responsibilities on this earth and, yeah. again, carries out uh, their, their activities, their responsibilities in the most honest, forthright um, manner.
how do you live with integrity <laughs> knowing that you're being so deceitful in in the in the business that you're in it's to essentially not be an integrity uh in certain practices but how do you personally keep your integrity as an individual and make sure you stay on that north star path yeah that's you know because the end does not justify all the means by any right, stretch right. of the imagination right. and i think that's one of the reasons why i decided to get out of the operations profession because i could not see myself doing that and, and deceiving individuals now I think there are some things where the the pursuit of of just ends and 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 good outcomes um, can allow for certain types of uh, behaviors and activities that um, facilitate the the accomplishment of those you know admirable and good goals. But and you asked the question earlier, how do CIA officers you know really? maintain their integrity in their personal lives yeah. and, you know, adopt these other sort of personas and, and tactics. And sometimes I found that it was hard for individuals. And I, I found that some people were were not uh, living by uh, that, that division mm. of maintaining that integrity in everything that they do, except for maybe those aspects of their operational responsibilities, where yeah. at least that initial meeting or initial meetings with somebody and they present themselves as a Department of State officer, a Department of Defense officer, is that is that something that really is unethical? Well, maybe it's not completely truthful, but as long as then the relationship with the individual adheres to certain types of, of um, traits or attributes, I, I think that getting your foot in the door <laughs> by maybe not, not right. being fully transparent is... I guess, you know, maybe I'm rationalizing it. Sure, sure. I don't <laughs> no, consider I just, it necessarily unprincipled or not. This is the, I, I get it. It's finding like justice through these actions. I understand that. I'm curious how much, I mean, a lot of this comes to me of understanding identity because as a former, let's say for myself, as a former football player, and I see this today where sometimes guys uh, – do wrongful things outside of the court or the field or whatever it may be on the football field. And then they'll do bad things, right? They'll hit their wives or they'll do certain aggressive actions that reflect being on the football field. And I remember as a football player, we were trained to have this identity. You can claim victory in sports on the job site, even on your taxes by switching to H&R Block. Block offers many ways to file to fit your schedule. A 100% accurate return on your max refund or your money back. Plus, you'll always know the price of your tax prep before you begin. Switch today and feel like a tax champion. This tax season, it's better with Block. Make an appointment at hrblock.com. Disclaimer, all tax situations are different. Not everyone gets a refund. Limitations apply. Description of benefits and details at hrblock.com slash guarantees. You can't always trust your gut. Like those times when it tells you to have that extra piece of cake or when it tells you to skip your morning routine and sleep in another hour. Probiotics can't help with most of your gut decisions, but if your gut needs a little support, Ritual has your back. They made a three-in-one supplement with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Ritual invested in a study modeling the human colon, which showed their Symbiotic Plus significantly increased microbial diversity and the 
the growth of beneficial bacteria. Rigorously tested and validated by a third party for allergens, microbes, and heavy metals, Ritual multivitamins are vegan, non-GMO, project-verified, gluten and major allergen-free, certified B Corp, and made traceable. Personally, I love Ritual's Symbiotic Plus because it keeps my gut feeling balanced and it's super convenient. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 20% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash greatness. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash greatness for 20% off. To inflict pain, to hit with anger, you know, to to do these certain actions and live in this persona and this identity. And then you take the pads off and you're supposed to be this loving, vulnerable human being. How does the CIA deal with identity and psychology training in terms of making, because you've got to play the part all in and then play a different part. That's got to be challenging, right? Psychologically, emotionally for some people. Yeah, I think that's a, a big, big question for <laughs> most everybody in the world. And, and you're right. I play a lot of sports as well. And so much depends on leadership mm. and the role modeling that parents provide, mm. teachers provide, coaches provide. I can remember, you know, I played high school basketball and there was a team that we played and they were, you know, they were higher ranked than we were. And their players, you know, would take every opportunity if the ref wasn't looking, you know, grab the shirt, give yeah. the elbow, whatever, yes. and just, uh, you know, resort to any tactic in order to win. And just watching them and watching the coach with them, it was almost encouraging it. And so some people have this, you know, approach of, you know, win it at all costs. And this inculcates in, in individuals then this, this attitude and an approach to, to life that goes beyond, you know, the football field or the basketball court. Uh, it's how they, they work in, in business or in, in whatever profession they are or, or cheat in school. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think it's, it's, we have to get back to, you know, having, you know, maybe a, a stronger educational system yeah. uh, and to um, have, and it starts at a very early age, uh, to, again, try to distinguish between right and wrong. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes the adrenaline gets going and, you know, now when I, you know, you see a you know, team score a touchdown, my goodness, it's a, you know, a, a rally in the end zone. You know, <laughs> years ago, they would catch, you know, and throw the ball down or whatever and go and just, you know, but, and so the, the, the culture, I think, has changed a lot. Mm-hmm. But uh, I do think having some real open and honest discussions about what is appropriate, what is, is not, but that role modeling, walking the talk, but one of the things I realized was at CIA, as director, everybody was watching what I did, listening to what I said. And I had to always be very aware that I wasn't sending any, you know, un- 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 unintentional signals or, you know, what I, the way I said something was, was received in a way that it wasn't intended. Because what person does at the top, what a coach says or what a coach does, really does have resonance then with the, the, the members of the team. So uh, I do think it's, you know, for CIA officers, for intelligence officers, uh, making sure they understand exactly what their obligations are on the professional front, on the personal front. What does it mean to have professional and personal integrity? Mm-hmm. What are the boundaries within which one has to work? And one of the challenges for CIA officers, I think, is just because something is, is lawful 
does not mean that it's ethical or principled, such as the example right. of the detention interrogation program. And so what I tried to do when I was at CIA is to, first of all, ensure some everything we do is lawful. But then is it consistent with the values that I think that need to, you know, the CIA needs to embody? Is it consistent with the, the ethics and principles of, of what the United States and, and the premier intelligence agency should, in fact, be engaged in? And everybody's going to have their own individual North Star um, that has been shaped throughout the course of their life. Um, but I think that if we're, we go back to, a, you know, maybe a, just a better sense of, you know, there is right and wrong. But unfortunately, too many people opt for the wrong, including politicians today, who role model for especially our young Americans, you know, the deceit, dishonesty, uh, the, the lack of integrity, the uh, lack of decency. Uh, it's just, unfortunately, it's being emulated far and wide, um, which is unfortunate. What would you say are some practical things that you're allowed to share um, of understanding if someone's lying or not? Are there any tips you could give that are, <laughs> that are common practice that you could see? You know what? There's some, there's some things you could really find out about a person when they do these things or if they're telling a lie. <laughs> Well, I think, you know, people will pick up on, you know, some discomfort in terms of how one, you know, <laughs> moves or handles themselves. You know, if, when when somebody's um, accounting of, of events or a story changes, <laughs> that's usually a good indication. And so you'll find that people who, you know, try to get out of, you know, culpability of, so, of something and they'll give one version of what happened and then, you know, the next version will be, you know, either slightly different or it's it, uh, telling the truth. Usually, um, you you know, I think it's imprinted in your brain, you know, the, the, the events as you remember them, as opposed to uh, trying to misrepresent the, the facts. And so um, there, there are some things that I think, you know, the CIA officers will try to um, evaluate and, and detect uh, when they're dealing with uh, a potential uh, asset or uh, called a developmental or a foreign national of interest. Uh, and again, the stories that uh, people weave uh, sometimes <laughs> give them give them, uh, give them away yeah. pretty quickly. I'm curious, what was the biggest challenge you had to overcome personally from your years uh, working at the CIA? Was it a level of learning how to be a better leader? Was it building confidence? Was it certain skill you'd had to develop? What was the biggest challenge you were faced when you started that you that you really overcame and grew into in a positive way that was no longer a challenge for you like it was previously? I think it was probably all of the above. I, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I learned some really painful lessons. You know, the, the first time I had a management role at CIA, I had no training for it whatsoever. And all of a sudden, you know, I was a, an analyst in a it was called a branch of you know eight or nine people, and a lot of them were older than me and even more senior than me. But I became their branch chief one day, and I made a lot of mistakes, and uh, it was very painful, and I, I very much regret it. Um, mm. But it was through those experiences that I was able then to develop, I think, some of the the better leadership and management techniques that I, I needed to acquire. What were some of those mistakes that you wish you? <laughs> well, I was I was rather officious in terms of you know. Um, almost dictating to people. Um, 
one of my responsibilities was to review papers that people would write. And so I would rewrite them the way I would write them. <laughs> oh, man. And I, I needed to understand that we all have our own, not just strengths and weaknesses, but we all have our different types of approaches and styles. Yes. And I needed to understand respect and be able to leverage, you know, the different styles. Um, and, and also engage more. Uh, I, I was a pretty strong introvert. You know, I think I still am, except mm. when I'm speaking out about you know, <laughs> some, some politicians. Um, and, and so I, I needed to uh, sit down, talk with people, and then listen. And uh, I think I was a little bit too much of a, of a loner. Uh, and so over the course of, of my career, uh, I was fortunate I was able to work for some very good people who who taught me some lessons. In fact, when I was deputy executive director, the executive director, his name was Buzzy Krongard. He was from uh, uh, the banking industry. He came into CIA. He has a real management you know, knack. Uh, mm-hmm. And the, when he learned that I was going to be his deputy, the first thing he said to me, he goes, John, I want you to know that you can make a mistake. I said, well, that's kind of interesting guidance. He said, now there's some caveats to that. Uh, one is, I want you to make sure that you don't make the same mistake twice, because that mm. shows you're not a learning person. So mm. any mistake you make, you have to learn from it. He goes, and secondly, um, if there is a decision that you have to make uh, that is the equivalent of a shot, if it goes wrong, it's a shot below the waterline. He's a former Marine, so there's an article reference there. He said, you really need to raise it up the chain of command. You need to bring other people into that. He said, this agency is big and strong. It can take a lot of shots above the waterline. But if it's a shot that's going to be near the waterline or below the waterline, that's not something that you uh, should do on your own. And he said that he's, he evaluated good leaders and managers of those know, who know what actions they should take he said, I don't want you to be afraid to make decisions, you know, because that's what you're here for, to make the right the decisions in your, in your position. He said, so the good managers and good leaders are the ones who know the actions, decisions they should make, and then the actions and decisions they need to raise up the chain of command, or that they need to bring other people into that discussion before a decision is made. And he said, understanding that is really, I think, the key to, to good leadership. And so it was something that was impressed upon me. And I think that the course of my subsequent career, um, I, I had the same approach, and I used that those same talking points with the people that worked for me. And I think your sports background, you know, you understand that it's not the team with the the hot shooter that wins the championships. Yeah, it, it's the team that's able to really work well together. That is so so critically important. And so I, I learned. How do you develop that. teamwork with non superstars? Sometimes I think it's it's a lot easier to develop teamwork with non-superstars because then there is mutual dependence. And it's one of the things that in CIA, people were asking me when I would swear them into office, what is it that is the, you know, the the key to success at the agency? I said, you know, you became director. (laughs) What was it? I said, well, I just happened to become director, but it also shows that anybody can, Uh, you know, there's obviously, you know, humility, integrity, all those things. But I said, the people I saw flame out in the agency, who I thought, you know, had all the, the, the talent that they needed were the ones who were really that individual operator, the, the people that, you know, kept information from others, the p- people who tried to promote themselves at meetings, or the, 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 the individuals who didn't recognize that one of the real um, objectives of the agency is to have people empower one another. What can you do to help 
empower the work of other CI officers? And what can others do to empower you? It's that interactive uh, um, system that really is going to define the success of the organization. Because you don't want to have a bunch of, you know, insular, you know, components. That's why when I was at the agency, I re reorganized the agency to better integrate the analysts and the operators and the scientists, mm -hmm. technologists, open source specialists, whatever else. To me, the real secret of success in dealing with future problems is better integration of capabilities and efforts so that you have an awareness of what others can do, what their capabilities are, what their tools are, what their authorities are. And with that awareness, then you can better plug and play in order to have a, a more sort of a symbiotic, you know, relationship uh, between them. So, and for, in a in a team, uh, and I played in a lot of I don't want to say mediocre teams, but teams <laughs> that were uh, that gelled well. That even though we might have only had a five hundred record <laughs> at times, yeah. you know, it was above what we were individually capable of because we were operated as a team, and um, and that again depends on on leadership uh, you know the tone the coach sets uh, you know the the, the signal sent the reward systems as well as the individuals you can have somebody be the leader of the team or the captain of the team who are not going to be the hotshot who are not yeah. going to be the the star they're the ones who are going to motivate they're the yeah. ones who are going to continue to set by example and to me that that's the difference between success and failure of any organization or enterprise. Uh, so that, 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 that team component, that again, mutual interdependence, that, that recognition that the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts is, is really so, so important. Yeah. And I didn't recognize that when I was an early manager, a leader at the agency. Mm. I had to learn that over time, <laughs> yeah. that uh, I had to rely more on other individuals, that is, and people who think that they're the best, the smartest, the brightest, you know, the wisest, um, they, they are failing to recognize the reality of the, of the environment. We're talking about leadership. You worked with six of the, the biggest leaders in the country. Do you think that the presidents, when they're voted in and they're chosen, do you think they are already great leaders or do you think they become great through the mistakes and adversity and the challenges that they face in their presidency? No, I don't think they're born great leaders. I think some of them have some innate traits and inclinations that allow them to develop into very good leaders. Um, you know, when you think about members of Congress, either in the Senate or the House, you know, they're legislators. You know, they, they may have a staff that they have to oversee, but they don't really lead you know, organizations or enterprises or whatever. I think there are certain skills that are attached to that. Um, you know, you look at, at Donald Trump, he was the, the head CEO of, of, of a family organization, you know, the people basically snapped to, I, I don't think he developed any real leadership skills, uh, there. Um, but I, I saw that, uh, the, the presidents that I got to know, well, while they were president, you know, uh, Bill Clinton to a degree, because I was his daily briefer, but then Bush and then certainly Obama, I, I saw them over the course of their eight-year terms, which wow. each of them served, really mature in terms of their understanding of the policy challenges they had to deal with. They uh, attained greater knowledge. Mm. And with greater knowledge, I think uh, you are able to be a, a wiser leader. And so I, I do think that 
all of them developed certain types of traits and characteristics, particularly maybe in their second terms. Mm-hmm. Um, I, don't, I think if George Bush's decision to invade Iraq in 2003, I don't think he would have made that decision in his second term. Really? Because I think he would have, again, uh, developed a, a better sense of what the implications of that decision were going to be. But uh, in the aftermath of 9-11 and Afghanistan and whatever else, I think he just was brought along in that, in that stream of, um, you know, recommendations. Reaction that, mode. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and a lot of recommendations that, you know, people who wanted to invade Iraq, uh, irrespective of the intelligence, you know, were determined to pursue. So, I, and, and with Barack Obama, um, I think he entered the Oval Office with very strong idealistic uh, visions, uh, uh, and as well as goals, and I think he he maintained maintained his idealism, but also it was it was leavened significantly by the experiences that he had, the practical realities of dealing with these very very difficult issues, both domestically and internationally, understanding better what is possible and doable, uh, and trying to optimize those issues and those outcomes that he he felt he could achieve and recognizing that there were some issues here that were basically beyond the, the solution that he in fact favored. And I, and I do think that, and the same thing when I was CIA director for close to four years, uh, I, I came to realize that there were some things that I, I felt very uh, strongly about that needed to be done, but having a better sense of the, the ecosystem, if you will, that you operate within gives you a better sense of what's achievable what's important and what you consider to be you know your priorities yeah this is fascinating where do you think we would be as a country if we didn't invade iraq oh well uh, i think that first of all the middle east would be so radically different because it was the invasion of iraq and then the implosion of iraq uh, that then allowed uh, isis the islamic state of, of iraq and syria to to grow and to you know establish a caliphate or whatever, and just ravage uh, Iraq and Syria, and so it, it has had tremendous, tremendous impact on the region as a whole. <clears throat> I'm not saying that you know we wouldn't have had challenges and issues with Saddam Hussein, who was a ruthless, bloody authoritarian leader, without a doubt. But um, the invasion of Iraq set off a chain of events that just had you know tremendous implications, you know, throughout the the region. As a as a country, um, I think the invasion of Iraq really did distract uh, quite a bit from our effort in Afghanistan, because then we had this two front you know war going on, and unfortunately we're you know still in Afghanistan after you know eighteen nineteen years, um, and I do think that we need to maintain some presence there, but uh, I do think the you know Iraq and Afghanistan two very hot battlefields going on simultaneously really did sap our ability to deal with either one of those issues effectively. Mm. But also the United States military obviously is the best military in the world and we certainly can win wars. Prevailing over counterinsurgencies is, you know, different, but we certainly can, you know, trounce any, you know, military that is out there. But we as a government, as a country, we do not do a good job of following a military victory with effective programs, assistance. Mm and development. I'm not talking about regime building. I'm talking about it's easy to destruct. It's much harder to construct. 
And unfortunately, we don't have, I think, the, uh, the capabilities, the approach, the, the experience that allows us to uh, develop war-torn countries, uh, certainly in the Middle East, South Asia. It was much different than repairing the damage of World War II in you know, post-World War II Europe and Japan. Those were basically you know, different types of societies. But in the, the tribe of the authoritarian you know, countries and, and basically largely rural areas, Without the development of political institutions and experiences, it's much more difficult to, uh, to seize a victory from the yeah. from a, a military conquest. What would you say are the three common principles, uh, leadership qualities that all the presidents you worked with had? What were those three things they all kind of developed that were similar that made them effective in leading in the White House and also effective in making decisions and being in the position they were in? I would say professional integrity. Uh, you know, Bill Clinton is a little bit of a different example because of you know his personal problems and issues there. And people will say, well, he didn't have personal integrity. Well, it's up to people to make that the subjective judgment. Mm-hmm. But I think all of them had that professional integrity. They took their responsibilities very seriously. They always tried to um, decide on a policy course, both domestically and internationally, that they believed was in the best interest of the country, not in the best interest of their party, nor in their own personal mm, interests. That's interesting. So I, I do think that professional integrity uh, is was important. Uh, secondly, at least in the issues that I dealt with them, I felt that, again, on a professional uh, plane uh, and their presidential responsibilities, they tried to be as honest as possible. And mm-hmm. it's, it goes along with integrity, but yeah. I, I do think being um, uh, as honest with the American people in particular, um, and also um, just trying to ensure that uh, Americans understood uh, what was happening. Um, I, I do think to varying degrees, they, they, they all tried to do that. Yeah. Third, uh, they all recognized that the United States' strength on the global stage really depends heavily on the strength of our alliances and partnerships, uh, and that uh, we really need to make sure that we take care of those relationships and not take them for granted. Uh, and that's important because over the last 75 years, you know, the United States has been the, the leader of the free world, and it's because of the credibility, I think, that we have had and the um, recognition of the part of a lot of countries around the world that they depend on that U.S. leadership role. And I do think all those, those presidents understood it. They had an appreciation of history uh, and the, the role that the U.S. played. And then finally, I, I think it is that they, they believe strongly that the United States has to play that leadership role on the global stage. Mm. That, and I, I'm, I believe in American exceptionalism, not because we're smarter or brighter or better looking or you know than anybody else we have had exceptional good fortune you know look at this large wonderful country with bountiful natural resources <laughs> arable land navigable rivers large sea coasts the, the, the world's melting pot we have all of those features of success no other country has that and given those exceptional good fortune. We have exceptional responsibilities. Mm. And that's why the, the, the mantra of America first, America first has been so shrill on the ears 
of people around the globe and, and people who you know I still stay in touch with you know overseas. They say, here's the United States using its muscularity, using all of its exceptional advantages to advantage itself at the cost of, of others. And I do believe that Presidents Clinton and, and Bush and Obama and before them, you know, President Bush 41 and Reagan and Carter and Ford and all the others, they, they really did understand that the United States has this very, very important global responsibility that, of course, we have to take care of our own country and our own people. But that doesn't mean we do it at the expense of the rest of the world. And that the more the United States is seen as being an advocate for you know, the, the growth and the prosperity of the world, I think the more in favor we will be and the, 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 more, the better off we will be as well. So I, I do think that those presidents had, again, that integrity, really tried to be honest, recognize the, the importance of the relationships the United States has around the world, and then also recognize that the United States has this very unique and important global role, leadership role yeah. that we must play. Yeah, I think it was Spider-Man that said, with great power comes great responsibility. Mm-hmm. And we, ha- we have a lot of power, and I think we have a lot of responsibility to, to live in the world as well. I want to keep going, but I want to be respectful of your time. And I have a couple final questions for you. Sure. This is called the three truths question. I ask all my guests at the end. Mm-hmm. So I'd like you to imagine a hypothetical scenario that it's your last day on earth many, many years from now, and you have lived the exact life you want to live and accomplished everything else you want to accomplish. But for whatever reason, all of your material, uh, your content, this interview, this book, it has to go with you to the next place you go. So no one has access to your written words, your audio, your videos anymore, but you get to leave behind a, a piece of paper that has three things you know to be true or your three greatest lessons that you've learned in your life that you would leave behind for the world as all they would have to kind of remember you by. I call it the three truths. What would you say are your three truths? My three truths about myself? Three truths for the world. Uh, three three <laughs> lessons that you would want to leave behind. Oh, uh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> I should have prepared for this. Um we are all imperfect beings, but that does not mean that we shouldn't strive for perfection. Mm. Recognize that there is so much about life we don't know, and maybe much of it is unknowable, but we should strive to understand as much as we can about who we are, why we're here, and what it all means. Mm-hmm. Third is to remember that we all are all individual beings and part of a, a larger global collective and that we each have a responsibility to do something during our short and fleeting lifetimes that benefits mankind in some way. I don't know if they're truths, but they're things that lessons, I, think, yeah. I think about. That's great. What, as someone who is now retired, what is the impact you want to have on the world moving forward beyond this book, uh, which I want people to get because 
we we barely scratched the surface on a lot of the stories in here and the lessons and incredible uh, eye-opening principles that you've you've learned through your years of working with these presidents and in the CIA. Uh, but I want people to get this book, My Fight Against America's Enemies at Home and Abroad, Undaunted. So make sure you check this out. But what is it you want to create moving forward? Well, it's one of the reasons why I decided to write a memoir, which was to provide a glimpse into what it means to work in the world of intelligence and national security and to try to encourage young Americans to seriously consider some type of public service during their lifetime, mm. whether it's intelligence or law enforcement or diplomatic corps or even local communities, it doesn't have to be the federal government, but this is a great, big, wonderful country. I am the son of an immigrant. My father emigrated from Ireland when he was 28 years old in 1948. Wow. and always instilled in me and my brother and my sister just how special it was to be an American citizen. And he said, never, ever take it for granted. He, go, he said, millions upon millions of people over the years have striven at a great uh, cost and sacrifice to come to the United States the way he did, you know, because it is the land of opportunity. It is the, the land that, where dreams are made. And that he said, too often, Americans who are born here really take for granted mm. all of the exceptional, exceptional good fortune that we have. And it's, he said, it's important to be able to give back to this great country of ours. And, and so I've tried to spend time, I'm affiliated with my two alma maters, Fordham University in New York and the University of Texas at Austin. I am a distinguished fellow and I talk to a lot of students and mm. participate in seminars and give them some of my, share my experiences about what life was like in working in the government, because what I really wanted to do was to um, share the great honor that I had through the course of 33 plus years, um, and to tell them that despite what you might, you know, hear about, uh, and despite what uh, you hear in Washington in terms of the denigration and disparagement of intelligence and law enforcement and the deep state you know, unfortunately, we live in this hyper-partisan, very politicized, very acrimonious in environment right now. But there are important things that we need to preserve uh, about this country. And there are some real significant challenges uh, that are on the horizon. And we need to, I think, work more um, uh, harmoniously <laughs> uh, to try to address the challenges that range from terrorism, to proliferation, to climate change, to um, cyber challenges, you name it. And we need to tap into this great melting pot of ours uh, so that the best and brightest really do contribute in some way to form a more perfect union. And uh, so I just am trying to spend as much time as I can sharing my experiences. My, my national security career is in my rearview mirror. Yeah. <laughs> But to the extent that uh, you know this this book helps to again spark maybe an interest, I, I'd like to write uh, some more, being more I guess analytical about some of the challenges that lie ahead, and just again to share my experiences as I as I can. You mentioned the deep state. This is something I don't really know much about because <laughs> I've just really... heard about it. I've never seen it. <laughs> <laughs> but this is a what is this conspiracy theory? that uh, the elite or the, the, the richest in the world are influencing government in certain ways and making decisions. Is that essentially the, 
Yeah, it depends on one's perspective of, you know, how they view the deep state. But I think that there is this, you know, very large cabal of folks, you know, in intelligence and, and uh, law enforcement and other things that operate clandestinely to try to shape world events and, and national developments. And uh, despite the best efforts of the, you know, the politicians and the leaders who are trying to, you know, uh, undercut the deep state, I, I I worked in government for, you know, over 30 years. I never encountered a deep state. Um Again, I, I think it's just a, a, a some people who are just trying to uh, you know make a point about you know people in the government who are uh, operating clandestinely, roguishly uh, against the better interest of the United States, and it is just a flat out lie. Wow, there you go. You heard it here. Then, <laughs> um, if someone wanted to become the president of the United States, let's say in the next fifteen twenty years, or someone's thinking about it one day, I want to become the president. What would you say? are two to three things they should develop as a leader now to prepare themselves to win the presidency and then be a great leader in their term? Try to uh, acquire as much knowledge as possible about what's going on in the country and the world. If you don't have that, that knowledge, uh, again, of, of current events, of, of history, of the law, you won't understand the the nature of the challenges as well as the opportunities that are out there mm. secondly I, I i have become very jaded about partisan politics um, because i think that party loyalties too often um, take precedence over uh, integrity and mm. what people should be doing I, I would like to think that a future president of the united states woman or man whatever um, will will emerge from a a non non partisan environment from the standpoint of one of the the two traditional political yeah, parties. Interesting, because I think um, you know we always want a president to be a president of all, not of a president of of, of a party or a particular constituent base. And uh, I I do think that governance in the 21st century is really difficult. And I, I think we have to be thinking about new models for leadership and the qualities of leadership. Um, and I do think having less partisanship, I understand it's, you know, a feature of the, of the political landscape and, and partisans can be very healthy, but leadership really requires one to transcend partisanship. And frequently it's, it's difficult, but I also do think that, a future president really needs to be non-ideological. And because of learning more about the world and having a much more pragmatic and practical understanding that the world is a complex, complicated place, <laughs> that there are no simple solutions to difficult problems, despite the rhetorical flourishes of a lot of politicians, that you know, these are tough, tough issues that really require um, a a better understanding of the, the nature of the problems, but also a sense that we can find ways to maybe compromise. Uh, and then finally, I just, the very, very unfortunate polarization that exists within this country. Um, I, I really hope that um, we're going to have more leaders who are not going to be on either end of that political spectrum, the left or the right. I have no tolerance for the ideologues out there because they wear blinders and they view the world through a very myopic prism mm. 
that they don't have an open mind for how their views uh, might be a bit off. Uh, mm. So I, I do hope that, uh, and then finally, I guess, you know, I'd like to think that future presidents are going to have the requisite humility, <laughs> understanding what the limits of their of their knowledge as well as their capabilities are, and that they're going to have to rely on a lot of other people in order to be a successful and effective president. Yeah, build a great team around you because you're not going to have all the answers, obviously. Oh, that's how sports teams do it. Exactly. Uh, John, I, I really acknowledge you for showing up the way you do right now after serving for so many years. I think it was 33 years in the CIA you served. Yeah, 29 and a half or so in CIA and another four plus at the White House as yeah. President Obama's assistant. So, yeah. I, I acknowledge you for showing up for as long as you did under the extreme amounts of stress and anxiety and uncertainty and unsuredness of decision-making at times and potential regrets and mistakes and weight that you might have had to carry for for different things i really acknowledge you for leading with a, a humble heart and uh, and serving at this stage of your life in a way to really help educate us and reflect back on lessons learned and how we can become better as human beings and as a country and in the world and uh, acknowledge you for for showing up the way you're showing up now it's it's really inspiring to to witness and see what's possible as someone leading at a, uh, a high level in government area. So I really acknowledge you for that. And I'm excited for people to get this book. Uh, tons of great stories, lessons, and things that you'll really want to learn about. If you want to gather information and become a better leader, you've got to gather information about the past. And this has a lot of that information. So make sure you check out this book. Uh, I have one final question for you. Uh-oh. <laughs> the toughest and, is usually some reserve for last. Yeah. It should be easy, I think, for you. Uh, but before I ask it, make sure people follow you on Twitter. You're John Brennan over there. Is there anywhere else we can support you, follow you, um, engage with you online? No, I, I pop up here and there in different uh, newscasts and other types of things. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know what the next chapter of my life is going to fully involve but uh you know i i've tried to take a step back a little bit from twitter also you know, I, I didn't i didn't want to cede the twitter sphere to donald trump and that's why i engaged in in a rather you know strident way at times that uh, yeah. much to my my critics uh, dismay and anger but uh, uh there's a, i'm originally from jersey so you know there you go the jersey comes out as well as you know my irishness comes out and I like to think that people um, never have to guess where I stand on issues, and uh, that's why I have been, uh, you know, criticized from all ends and of the political spectrum. Just sure, me. sure. Well, there you go. Well, they can follow you there if you ever get back on on a consistent <laughs> basis. But the final question is: What is your definition of greatness? Oh, my definition of greatness: accomplishing something that is beneficial to more than yourself <laughs> to to making a positive difference to taking full advantage of of one's life to do something productive something helpful something important something profound something memorable in a good sense mm. making a contribution to humankind and sometimes it can be something that is you know globally known and, and understood, but some things that 
are known only to a relatively few. But unknown people can achieve greatness. Um, it, it doesn't require a, a, a very large public profile. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people seize opportunities that, that come to them. They rise to the occasion. Um, and so, uh, again, greatness to me just means that it's a, it's something meaningful mm -hmm. that someone is able to achieve and accomplish. Again, something that is that affects more than themselves. Yeah, that's beautiful, John. I really appreciate you for coming on. I want people to get the book on Dante. Check this out. Uh, and thank you so much for your service, your leadership, and for your humility again. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Lewis. I really enjoyed the conversation. Best wishes to you and to all your listeners. My friend, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode. If you enjoyed this content with John Brennan, make sure to check out his book and make sure to share this link to a friend that you think would be inspired. Spread the message of greatness forward. LewisHowes.com slash 1051 or just copy and paste this link and share with your friends on social media. Make sure to tag me, Lewis Howes, and let me know what you thought of it. Also, we've got the full video over at youtube.com slash Lewis Howes. If you want to subscribe over on YouTube, a million strong over there, and it's growing rapidly. We've got incredible content from over the years, so make sure to check out some of the YouTube stuff as well. And click that subscribe button right now on Apple Podcast if you enjoyed this, because that will help us reach more people on Apple, which is the biggest audience we draw from currently. So if you enjoyed this, if you're a fan of the show, if you're a fan of helping others, then click on that subscribe button and leave a rating and review right now. It really helps us spread the word so we can continue to reach and interview more powerful people with greater wisdom to share. If you enjoy inspiration and you want to be motivated and inspired on a weekly basis, then you can text me the word podcast right now to my number, 614-350-3960. I send out weekly inspirational messages over to your phone right there. So just text the word podcast to 614-350-3960. And I'm going to leave you with this inspiring quote from Marcus Aurelius, who said, Waste no more time arguing about what a good man should be. Be one. Whew. And I want to remind you, if no one's told you lately that you are loved you are worthy and you matter, my friend. I'm so grateful for you for showing up day in and day out to make your life better and the lives of people around you better. And you know what time it is. It's time to go out there and do something great. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.